Hi, this is Steve Parkadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, August 9th, 2011, and we're so delighted to have you here. Our special guest is Douglas Rushkoff. Doug, welcome. Good to be with you. Thanks so much. This is a return engagement for you. I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Uh, the Future of Education is supported by Learning Central and Blackboard Collaborate. The company I work for is Blackboard. Also, my Web 2.0 Labs project. And Doug, I'm getting a little bit of an echo, so if you want to turn your mic off when I'm speaking, that would be great, and then I'll do the same for you. We have announced the Library 2011 conference, virtual conference, two days in November for free worldwide. Should be a blast. Uh, we're getting an enormous amount of interest in this. The library2011.com or .net. And of course, the Global Education Conference coming up five days in November. We're a little bit behind on getting some of the material out, so if you've been wondering where that is, give us another week or so. But again, five days. Last year, over 15,000 logins, presentations from 62 countries, over 400 presentations should be just as much fun this year. Coming up on the Future of Education this Thursday, Alan Blankstein talks about scaling excellence. Uh, next week, Dr. Gary Lopez on hippocampus.org and Jeff Piontek on education change and reform. On August 25th, filmmaker Bob Compton will talk about his new film, The Finland Phenomenon. Richard and Rebecca Dufour will talk about learning communities. Howard Gardner comes on the show in September. Sam Chaltain, Peter Cookson as well. Lots more coming up, lots of fun uh, sessions to be added soon as well. If you've missed anything, they are all recorded. Uh, last week we heard from Jim Mayfield on humanitarian work and uh, engaging uh, efforts at a local village level. If you didn't listen to that, it was really fascinating and the parallels with education I think are, are quite significant. Before that, Jane Nelson and Mary McGuire on Adlerian Psychology and Education. Karen Egan on Learning in Depth, lots and lots. Oh, Carol Black on her movie School in the World. We could go on and on, but they're all up on futureofeducation.com, either in full Illuminate versions or in the MP3 format. So this is where we give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the whiteboard, you should now see some icons. You're looking for the star. If you click on that star and then click on the map, we'll see where you're participating from. You're also welcome to shout out in the chat, time and temperature maybe. Seeing New Zealand, North America, maybe Hawaii. Well, wherever you're participating from, we're sure glad to have you joining us. We also uh, know that some of you are listening to the recording, and we sure appreciate your taking the time to do that. So Doug, I have to say, um, this was really a great book for me. I'm going to turn my video off so we can just see you. This was really a terrific book for me. Um, uh, how has it been received? Um, generally pretty well. Um, the, uh, the only community, oddly enough, the only community that has uh, had any strong resistance to it has been the programming community itself. I mean, half of them think it's great because they want the world to join them in programming. And half of them, I think, feel that uh, learning programming, 
was not just hard but kind of special for them. You know, I think I think they feel that their their programming skills, that their programming literacy, is is a specialty, and that um, not just not just in terms of ego, but in terms of um, uh, what they've dedicated themselves to. I, I think they feel like they've dedicated themselves to making these environments simple enough for anybody to use without knowing programming so that if people learn, you know, if people really learn to get behind what's going on, then some of their programming efforts are superfluous. And I'm trying to tell them it doesn't, uh, it doesn't make them superfluous at all. If anything, it makes them even more important because now they're not just communicating through you know, whatever the program supposedly does, but now they're also communicating values through the interfaces. You know, the more you know about programming, the more you actually understand what the differences say between the, the iPhone environment and the Android environment and what the different values are implicit in those two worlds. And I think that's something, that's something worth knowing, and it actually... Um, it adds an entirely new level to the uh, uh, to the communication that's going on. So now you're communicating not just by what you're doing, but by the way in which you're doing it. You know, so just like as a as a writer, I appreciate a reader who understands not only what I'm trying to say, but who appreciates you know the the rhetorical grace or lack of grace with which I've expressed something. I find that to be a, a a reader relationship that's more satisfying than one where they're just looking at the content. Um, other than that, it's um, the 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 other obstacle I think people have is the sense that, oh my God, are you saying I've got to learn how to program? That I've got to go do this whole other thing? My life is complicated enough. You know why why do you expect this of me? And there's this there's this sense that. You know, that it's as if I'm asking uh, people who drive cars now that they have to, you know, learn how to open the hood and fix the cars. But I'm not really talking about the difference between a, a driver and a mechanic. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the difference really between a driver and a passenger. You know, as far as these technologies are concerned, if, if you don't know how they work, if you don't know how your computer works, and I don't mean the power supply and the, and the display, but the actual programming languages that you're in, then you don't really, uh, you're, not, you're not a literate member of, of this community. You know? And as more and more of our activities are occurring on top of interfaces like this one, I, mean, I think it's, it's crucial to understand you know, how one environment differs from another. You know, rather than, you know, you know, we might depend on you or Howard Reingold or someone to pick uh, uh, like a, a teaching environment, a classroom environment that isn't biased against students. You know, we have to trust that if we don't understand really the, the semantics of how a world like this works. So I find that sort of uh, I'm, I'm dealing a lot with uh, people's belief that this is just too hard to get, you know, and I feel like I'm sometimes like I'm talking to my daughter or someone saying, you know, reading looks really hard, but it's actually not that hard, you know, and after kindergarten or first grade, you're really going to know how to do it well, and it's not going to seem so outrageously difficult. I mean, you might not, you know, write like James Joyce, but 
you're going to know how to write in addition to how to read, and it's going to be a, a satisfying experience once you just kind of put your mind toward looking at this world um, as, a, as a doer rather than just as a receiver. So uh, I find that really interesting within the context of the interview series I did that preceded the future of education, which was on open source software and education. And I interviewed Richard Stallman and Eric Raymond and Brian Bellendorf and Mark Andreessen and you know, a number of names that people in the open source world would know. And intriguingly, sort of the conclusion we came to when I stopped doing that interview series was that most of these programmers hadn't actually learned or done any of what they'd done in traditional schooling that had taken place outside of school. So maybe that in part explains a little bit of that pushback. Now, you've said that the car is not the correct analogy, but in some ways you kind of, um, uh, you use it later in the book to describe a way in which we've gotten comfortable that we haven't realized how programmed we have been, uh, specifically with the car. And maybe we could start there. What happened with the automobile and our adoption of it that, that you might describe as being sort of purposeful that we might not even think about? Well, when I'm, when I'm talking about learning programming, I'm kind of talking about it in two different ways. I mean, there's first is the way that everybody thinks of it, which is just learning programming as a technical skill. You know, how do you actually do this? And the, the other way I'm hoping people become aware of programming, and maybe um, in some ways the more important way right now, is programming as a liberal art. And that's really understanding programming in terms of biases. In other words, what, what do computers encourage and what do they discourage? What does digital technology promote and um, what does it not promote? You know, and if we look at our technologies like that, we can kind of more purposefully and consciously deploy them in our lives rather than just automatically accepting them. So you know, when, I, when I bring up the, the automobile, uh, in the book, it's really looking at it that way. You know, it's saying that, you know, what if we had been more aware of the biases of the automobile before we quite literally rebuilt our country around the needs of the automobile? I mean, right now, most of us are born into a world where, you know, you need a car in order to get to work. You know, and why do you need a car in order to get to work? Is it because that's just the way the world is? You know, it turns out no. You know, the 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 one of the uh, uh, chairs of of General Motors became the Secretary of Defense in the United States in the 1940s in order to promote the the needs of the automobile, so that we would build a highway system and reconfigure our cities and suburbs in such a way as to promote the use of automobiles. So by putting bedroom communities a certain distance from the places where people worked, we ended up creating a world in which you need to buy a car in order to have a job. You know, so that it's not a conspiracy. It was, it was done conscious, consciously and purposefully because people felt at the time you know, this will be good for America. We'll create more jobs for people to build cars. We'll help the economy because people will be buying cars. And everyone will get to have that great experience of American individuality, which is kind of a myth in its own right, of driving alone to work rather than sitting on the bus with all these other people. You know, and what did we do? We ended up, you know, creating a world in which 
Most Americans work one day a week just to support the vehicle they use to get to work. You know, and we end up, you know, consuming so much oil that we have to fight wars in order to get more of it. We end up with uh, fossil fuel depletion and pollution. We end up with all of these, you know, unintended consequences because we didn't really look at what are the biases of the automobile when we were all deciding to use it. You know, and I kind of look at computers that way, not to say that they're a bad thing or anything like that, but that by understanding the biases of these technologies, we might be able to more skillfully and intelligently deploy them, you know, rather than, say, turning our public schools into classrooms like this one, we might say, okay, there's certain things about education you get through digital technology. It's great as a long-distance learning tool, but is it the best up-close learning tool? Is it something that we want to replace our classroom experience with? And, and if we do, what will be the repercussions of that? So it's really a matter of kind of looking at things, um, I would say intelligently, but looking at things knowledgeably, just looking at the, the, the biases, the tendencies. What, is, what does your technology want from you? And are you willing to go down that road where you kind of rebuild, you reconfigure your life around the needs of the technology that you've decided to bring into it? So what I read in the book was that it is that you're addressing these biases inherent in the, tech, in the digital media technologies, but also you, you seem to be addressing the motives of those who promote them. And what I hear you calling for us to do is to become sort of consciously aware that it's really this is a really important period of time in the history of mankind in the world, and we need to be more than just surface level consumers. We need to be consciously aware of both the biases of the technology and the motives of those who might use those technologies to to create for us. Well, yeah, I mean, and you can, I mean, as as the person in the in the chat is explaining, you can even understand programming, the technological part of programming, without understanding that liberal arts part of programming, without understanding how do these machines work and, and why do they work that way. So when you look at the difference between an open source environment and a closed source environment or an Android um, platform and a, an iPhone platform, say, you know, you can, you, you might understand how to program for both of those environments without understanding the kinds of things that, that I might talk about or Cory Doctorow might talk about in terms of, well, how does working and living in this environment, how does that affect the balance of power between you and the corporation from whom you're purchasing this software? How is the balance of power shifted between you and the people running your social network, if you're in a Facebook environment versus a Google Plus environment versus a, a Quora or versus LinkedIn or versus Diaspora, you know, what are the differences in the way these people or these programs use information? What is the difference in the way they ask you to categorize your information? How do they ask you to think about yourself? How do they ask you to think about your friends and your relationships? In other words, the, the, the ways in which we use technology often create the templates, create the mirrors through which we then identify ourselves. And that's not just the code part of programming, that's the, the agenda part of programming that you're talking about. You know, what does Facebook want from you? You know, if you look at Facebook as I do, as a media theorist would, not even as a programmer would at this point, 
you'd have to ask, well, what is Facebook for? You know, and if you really ask what is Facebook for, you know, the, the first answer you might have is, oh, well, Facebook is here to help me make and communicate with my friends. Now, and that's possible. You know, for you, that's what it's for. But what is Facebook for as far as Facebook is concerned? Is the, the people who make Facebook, are they sitting in their, in their boardroom right now thinking, how am I going to help Johnny make friends? Or are they thinking, how am I going to help how am I going to help my real customers, these, these corporations and, and market research firms, how am I going to help them monetize Johnny's social graph? You know, the easy way to figure out what a technology is for is to look at who is the technology's customer. Now, we might think of ourselves that we're Facebook's customer, but are we paying Facebook? No, we're not paying Facebook. Who's paying Facebook? Facebook's customers are market researchers. Facebook's customers are the people buying our data, our social graphs from Facebook. What does that make us? Well, we're the product, right? We're the product that Facebook delivers. Or our social graphs are the product that Facebook delivers. So we're the laborers. We're working for Facebook, making our social graphs and writing all our preferences and connecting ourselves to everybody. We're creating the stuff that they then set up. I know it's not directly related to the question of the biases in digital media, but it sure feels as though your work in this area has direct application to even the stories that we're reading now about the financial crisis. And in many ways, that this need to be consciously aware of motives and biases is something that, you know, in large part seems to have been missing in our economic culture in the last 25 years is we've allowed corporations to kind of determine the rules. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, that's why I wrote a book called Life, Inc. that was about that. I mean, great, great media theorists of the 20th century, people like, uh, uh, you know, Lewis Mumford and Marshall McLuhan and Walter Ong and, and Harold Innes, these are people that looked at media and technologies um, in terms of uh, uh, looking at them as as environments, you know, as uh, platforms on which human interaction takes place, and you can look at almost anything through that lens, at any institution, any cultural creation, any piece of technology. So when I look at um, the invention of central currency, say, um, I look at it as, okay, when was the kind of money that we use invented. Who invented it? And what did they invent it for? And then you find out, oh, central currency, the kind that we use today, was pretty much invented in around 1200s, 1300s by kings who had lost the ability to participate in value creation. So, you know, as the middle class was rising, they had all of these peer-to-peer -peer currencies that they were developing in various localities. Those currencies were made illegal and replaced with a quite closed source centralized currency. You know, and there were wars fought over it. People died fighting to get to use their own monies. And they weren't allowed to, and we ended up with a certain kind of money. And it's great for a lot of things. It's great for long distance transactions. It's great for buying iPhones. It's great for storing value and even increasing in value over time. This is a kind of money that just having it 
means it's going to grow. But what does that mean? It means that it ends up being a money that's biased towards capitalism and away from transaction, away from sharing. So it's biased towards certain kinds of institutions and certain kinds of people, right? This was a kind of money that was made to help rich people stay rich simply by being rich, right? This is a money system that, in which money is lent into existence from a central bank and it has to be paid back at interest. So it's a very particular kind of money that keeps us in service to it, to it and the institutions that lend it. Uh, once we understand that, we say, okay, so money is kind of like an operating system, and it's a particular operating system, but it's not the only one that we can have. I mean, if you woke up in a world where every computer had windows on it, you wouldn't know that there's such a thing as an operating system. So likewise, we wake up in a world, we're born into a world where there's basically one kind of money, you know, a whole bunch of countries have different labels on it, but it's all central bank issued money. That's what money is to us. And we're not even aware of the fact that, oh, this is a particular technology that was invented at a particular time to serve, basically to serve corporations, to serve chartered corporations and banks. So you could look at, at many different things like that. I mean, what, what my career has really been about is looking at things that we tend to accept as given circumstances and to sort of reveal them as social constructions, to reveal them as operating systems, as technologies that were invented and that pushed out other ones. And just to reopen the conversation so that we can ask, well, if this thing isn't working for us anymore, do we want to regain access to the OS? Do we want to reboot this? Do we want to try alternative pieces of software, whether that's in education or in our churches or in, the, in our medicine? You know, do we want to try the homeopathic model rather than just the allopathic one or chiropractic or, or uh, aromatherapy, whatever it is that might um, shiatsu, for God's sake. You know, it could be any alternative system that seems like nonsense or magic or non-existent if we don't uh, know about where our model came from, where the model we're using came from, and we don't know anything about sort of the history of competition between, between those models before something uh, became instated. So um, as I read the book, I came up with a, a thesis for the book, and I'm hoping you'll tell me if you feel like this is appropriate. The thesis was, this is maybe one of the most important moments in the history of mankind. Uh, we have a choice. We're either going to remake the world or allow other people to remake it for us. And so it's really important right now that we become engaged. Is that close? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a, a biggie. I mean, it certainly might be a biggie. You know, it's the, the invention of digital technology, these sort of post-industrial age technologies, and digital is one of them, and nano would be another, robotics would be another, um, genetics and genetic engineering would be still another. These are a new, a new dimension of technology where the tools that we're making aren't just tools that sit there like a shovel or a a car or something that just works when you operate it. These are technologies that you set into motion and then kind of operate themselves. They move on without us. They, they replicate. They can alter themselves. They can grow. They can even fight for their own survival. You know, that's very different. 
And every time one of these sort of renaissances in technology and media happens, we end up with kind of a new window of opportunity for people to become directly involved in their creation, to kind of, uh, I mean, even the word renaissance means the rebirth of, it's the rebirth of, of old forms in a new context. So we retrieve values that may have been lost from the past. You know, now that we have this opportunity, there's a new web and a new way of communicating. There's new possibilities for peer-to-peer -peer value exchange, for new currencies, for um, people to express themselves, to talk back to authority, new kinds of democratic models, um, you know, ways of organizing government and civics, um, new ways of sharing information, new ways of, of creating value. Um, we have to look at, well, do we want to seize that opportunity or do we want this just to be built by the powers that be? You know, my concern is if we let this stuff be built by the powers that be, we're going to end up um, extending and amplifying the sort of end stage industrial age crisis that we're in. You know, the end stage industrial age corporatist crisis that we're in is what's going on in the economy now with the extreme disparity of wealth between rich and poor, with the inability of people to innovate effectively in almost anything but financial instruments, the uh, you know, pollution of our world, the inability to slow down consumption and production um, without crashing our economy really means to me that there's a, a need for some new models, for some new ways of seeing things. So uh, I am encouraging people, um, real people, um, to participate more actively so that um, some alternative models can begin to compete with the, with the extant ones um, in order to uh, open up some new possibilities and um, perhaps even promote the survival of our species another couple of centuries. So it feels as though there's also an inherent tension in these technologies, uh, and I'm not sure I'm using your words or mine, but essentially that, that, that we need to be more engaged, but the technologies actually invite us to be less engaged, whereas machine complexity increases, human complexity decreases. What's taking place there? Doug, your mic is off. Uh, since most of us don't know how our machines operate, um, what actually tends to go on is that as we use our computers, as we use our interfaces and we use the web, you know, all of our keystrokes are being recorded. Facebook is learning about us. Google's learning about us. The ad servers are learning about us. You know, Microsoft Word is learning about us. Our technologies are learning an awful lot about us. And I feel like we're not learning so much about our technologies, you know, that, that on the one hand, that's beautiful. You know, our, our technologies are going to conform to our will and just create the things that we want. Um, but what technologies are really trying to do, because they're part of a larger economic system, a, a system about, about consumption and advertising and marketing and production, what our technologies are really trying to do is to predict and even lead our behavior. I mean, that's what persuasive computing is about and captology and um, a lot of the latest uh, Silicon Valley scientists are really about 
predicting human behavior, looking at big data sets, it's called big data is sort of the new, the new thing and what they're hoping the cloud will allow is not just for you to store stuff off your hard drive, but the cloud will allow companies to look at big, big data sets in order to predict our behavior and even steer our behavior once they can predict it. It's kind of the, uh, uh, um, the what's that Tom Cruise movie, uh, uh, you know, where you, you Minority, minority, you know, where you, yeah, where you try to, where they try to figure out where, where is this all going by looking at data sets and modeling different people. So there's tremendous amounts of effort and technology and storage and processing going into learning more and more about what it means to be human, so that computers can start leading the way as to what it means to be human, rather than us learning about technology so we can make the technologies do what it is that we might want them to do. And, um, you know, we'll see what, how, just how dangerous that is. I currently don't trust the people who are doing that work. I don't think that they're really just looking at how to, I don't think they're even thinking about it in this way. You know, they're not artists. They're not humanitarians. They're business people. So they're looking at how do we extract the most value out of people and their transactions rather than how do we create the most value for people as our species moves forward. So the book is structured in the form of 10 commands. Essentially what you're saying is that the technology has biases and here's some ways that we need to think about addressing those biases. And, and I, I sense there's an actual parallel with the 10 commandments, kind of the sense of transition time and the need for this kind of uh, definition. So the first one though kind of threw me because it's time and uh, I couldn't really tell if you were saying that the bias for time was that it's outside time or it creates immediacy. What's the bias there? And then what, what are your recommendations understanding that bias? Well, I think I believe that digital technology exists outside time. You know, where uh, computer programs, basically they they're sequential in the way they work rather than real time. You know, it's lines of discrete code so that a program will wait here until it gets its next command. It could be a second later, it could be a millisecond later, it could be a week later. You know, it's going to sit and wait. And, you know, computers were, uh, programming languages were developed that way so that computers could take commands from itself from a computer immediately or so that it could take a command from a person and obviously the command from a person would take a whole lot longer so it didn't want to be biased really in terms of where it gets its command from so it just sits and waits it's just a sequence it's like a flow chart and it'll sit and wait until the next command comes and the uh, first sorts of, of internet and digital experiences that I had were consonant they were consistent with this asynchronous bias. You know, there was a discussion group called the well. And on the well, you know, you would you would you know turn on your computer and you'd you'd get your your software going and you would use a modem to plug into the into the phone line and you'd dial into this computer, you'd download a conversation, you'd read the conversation, and then you would decide how you wanted to participate. You know, it might take you an hour, it could take you overnight or two days to write the paragraph or two that was going to enter into that conversation, and then you'd log back onto that 
server and upload your your paragraph. You know, and you could be smarter than you were in real life on the internet. And that was kind of the beauty of these online environments is that everybody was like as quick witted as Christopher Hitchens. You know, we were all smarter than we really were, right? We could we could we could operate at a higher level than we normally did. You know, the the same for email. You know, email was something you got in your own time. So instead of a phone call where you had to be ready with a response, you could get to the email in your own time, look at it and decide when you really had a smart enough and appropriate enough answer for that for that query. You know, that's using the technology, I would think, in accordance with its bias, in, its, in an asynchronous fashion. You know, when we take these same technologies and, you know, put them on our bodies and have them vibrate every time someone wants something from us, what we're doing is taking an asynchronous technology and trying to turn it into a synchronous one, into an always-on technology. And when you're always on, you know, you end up with all of the, the, those weird um, kind of nervous system responses to technology where you get, you know, phantom vibration syndrome where you think that you're phone is, you know, vibrating in your in your pocket, even though it's not even there. You know, these are not adaptations to technology. These are maladaptations. This is a nervous system that's frying because you're you're asking yourself to respond all the time to everything that's peripheral to you. Um, so, I mean, there 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 are exceptions. I mean, there's there's this, you know, which is an interesting environment. This is kind of uh, trying to do real time with media, you know, and it's, and on a certain level, we're here together. On a certain level, it's, it's not. I mean, where it's, what it's great for, and you kind of showed that in your map, it's great to bring people together from a whole bunch of different places on the globe so we can all share a virtual space together, kind of a second life. Um, that's great. But as in the second bias of, of digital media, digital media is great for long distance but it's really bad for up close, you know, unless you're doing a surgery or something with some digital magnification tool, in which case it's still bringing something that would normally be far away from you up close, right? That's what you're using it for, to, to shorten the distance. So it's great for that. If we were all in the same town, I would really hope we'd be able to get together for this hour rather than, than do it like this. You know, and as I say in the book, I walked into a classroom where the students were actually in Second Life with one another in the same room. They created a simulation of their classroom in order to conduct their seminar rather than actually being in the space with each other. And that just, it, it was kind of funny. I mean, I think at the end of the year, they realized how silly what they had done was because it wasn't even a computer class. They were just trying to use the technology um, without thinking about, well, what are the biases? Just sort of how does that work? So I couldn't tell sometimes if I was disagreeing with you in the book or if you actually were sort of of two minds. Meaning, I, I even wondered if you could have written this book from the, from the aspect of the positive aspects of technology with some caveats rather than the commands to address the biases. For instance, uh, one of the things I've noticed in these kind of virtual environments is that those of us who participate are all the more eager to get together in physical environments and the conference attendance actually even kind of goes up. So do you sort of see both sides of this or did I read that into it? Well, I'm not, I'm not looking at things, I mean, in terms of like good and bad, I'm not really looking at it in sides as much as in, in biases, you know, that it, these things work better for certain things than others. 
you know, that they're going to, and they're going to encourage certain kinds of behaviors and responses in people as opposed to others. So uh, as long as you know those, you can use them consciously. Like, um, you know, I'm a media theorist, so I've read Walter Ong on the difference between oral culture and literate culture. So I understand really well that the oral culture affects certain parts of the brain and encourages certain kinds of cognition. You know, when you're hearing a story told to you by a person, um, it's very different than when, say, you read a story in text. You know, they're two different experiences. They, they hit different critical faculties. So when I get invited to go do a talk somewhere, um, I like to just do a talk. I like to just be there in the body. And a lot of times the places I'm going, they're all upset that I don't have a PowerPoint. You know, that they want a PowerPoint for people to look at so they feel like they've gotten value from it. And I refuse to do it. Um, not that I'm against PowerPoint. It's not like I'm in, of two minds about PowerPoint. PowerPoint's great. God bless. Use PowerPoint. It's because I understand that if they're going to ship my body 3,000 miles and use jet fuel and all that, I want to take advantage of the biases of my body. That the, the, the cost of getting me there to me means the bias should be towards the human body that's in the space with them. You know, if they don't want to ship my body, I'll do PowerPoint over the net. You know, that's fine. In a situation like this, if I knew how to use PowerPoint, I'd be happy to use PowerPoint in that, in that situation. So people will think, oh, you're against PowerPoint. You don't think it's good. And it's like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that um, if I want to um, affect and move a crowd the way I know how to, if I want to engage with people through the oral means and through a, a, an oral rhetoric, um, then I know that using PowerPoint words behind me is going to activate a part of their brain that's actually going to, um, that's going to inhibit their ability to experience this other thing that I'm trying to impart, this uh, uh, kind of lateral thinking or whatever it is that I'm trying to demonstrate in real time with them, you know, with my body. So we're not going to have time before the Q&A to go through all of the 10 uh, biases and, and commands. I was particularly That's why they're written why down. They're written. Yeah. People can read them. Buy the book. Buy the book. I, I was particularly interested in uh, how some related to education. And, and one for me was the, the chapter on social, do not sell your friends. And um, the sense that content is not the king, contact is. And, and we sometimes try and usurp or hijack the social technologies to do something more than the sort of inherent desire that people have to make contact with each other. Do you want to describe that at all? Well, it's funny. I I, I read an article recently that it was acting as if it was kind of rehumanizing the net. Um, they, they were all happy that now um, instead of just selling our social graphs to corporations, Facebook was going to give us the ability to earn money by, by basically to participate in the money that corporations are paying for our social graphs. You know, so basically what they're saying is instead of just exploiting you, we're going to cut you in on it. You know, so, uh, and to me it's funny because I, I look at my, um, 
I look at my connections with other people, my, my social connections, as, uh, I don't think I'm a spiritual person, but as kind of sacred, as, um, as, as real, as a non-commodified space. I mean, sure, if I need work, I could see turning to my friends and saying, gosh, is there anybody there who can help me, you know, find a job? Or I could see being really clear with my friends and saying, look, I just wrote this book. I think it's great. Please support me. You know, and it's clear what I'm saying and doing. I think it's another thing to kind of turn a potentially social space, if I saw Facebook that way as my social space, and say, oh, the more friends I get, then the more valuable I'm going to be when I sell my social graph to these companies that Facebook is letting me sell myself to. So now I'm going to be acquiring people in order to sell them or sell their email addresses. I mean, I'm going to do some, you know, Farmville program or Mafia Wars, which is really, um, these are programs designed really just to get you to spam your your email with, with uh, uh, the opportunity to play this game you know, and it seems compelling at the time. I mean, but what you're really doing is offering, you're rendering your your uh, Rolodex unto uh, unto a company. Um, it's sort of that, um, and, and that chapter was also largely about um, sort of the way companies are using social media. You know, what I, what I was trying to do was to help companies understand that it's it's kind of less important to have people friend your company or your brand than to have your friends friend each other. In other words, if you want to create a culture, you know, people don't want to talk to a brand. All these advertisers, they always say, oh, the consumer's in a conversation with your company. They're in a conversation with your sneaker. You know, and now you can talk directly with them. You know, people don't want to have a conversation with a company. They want to converse with each other. They want to find the others who maybe use this thing or are part of that culture. But the way you build a culture is by fostering fertility between the members of your community, not creating some sterile one-to-many relationship between all of your customers and you. Um, and that's, uh, uh, I mean, it comes uh, largely from, from a lot of these companies' uh, former dependence on desocialization as a way of selling stuff. You know, people who are desocialized buy more stuff because stuff replaces human relationships. You know, people who are alone watching television are much better targets for an advertisement than someone who's sitting with their lover on the couch, right? What do they need that for? They've got someone to have sex with, you know? So uh, I think it's hard for companies to understand what social really means because they, they've been so dependent on a desocialized landscape in order to do their business. So for me, the parallels with education now were really strong and just the whole concept of social learning and students working with each other. And um, if anybody wants to pursue that, we can do it. So one final question for me, and again, we're not going to be able to touch on all of the points. It felt like there was a little bit of tension between uh, telling the truth, the fact chapter, and the complexity chapter. That the, the you seem to be saying that the you know, the web sort of drives us towards simplistic answers and instead of complexity. And you even mentioned uh, an attack on you personally versus that the truth sort of always seems to come out on the web. It feels like kind of both are true. And I think both are, both are true. Um, you know, the truth will come out. Um, 
whether or not people will know it's the truth, I suppose, is the other, uh, you know, is the other side of it. And when that truth comes out, I mean, you know, what generation will it be that finally understands what the heck happened at 9-11 or, you know, or, or what anything is going on? You know, it, it takes a while until, um, you know, every WikiLeak post is out. And there's so much disinformation along with the regular information. It's hard to um, it's hard to parse it. But um, I do think that that if the net isn't biased exactly toward truth, it's biased towards fact, right? And that doesn't mean necessarily true facts. It means nonfiction. You know, so. Uh, the kinds of things that spread in social media will be the gossip and the rumors about Tiger Woods or Charlie Sheen or WikiLeaks or this or that. It's not the sort of the mythologies of the Keebler elves that people spread around on Twitter. You know, when I look at lots of different companies thinking that, oh, you know, how are we going to get our brands spread around in social media? And people don't really spread brands. They spread facts. So I was kind of trying to tell companies that, you know, if you want – um, if you want people to spread things about you, give them facts to spread because, you know, you're going to tweet something because you're going to gain social currency by tweeting it. And you're going to gain social currency. You're going to gain retweets if there's some value in that thing. It could either be just really funny. I mean, and then people might spread it. But even those really funny things are funny because they, they share a truth. They share a fact. So I was kind of trying to argue that social media ends up more biased towards um, just like any peer-to-peer -peer, uh, medium in the old days, tidbits of gossip. I mean, juicy bits of gossip. We got that. You know, the, the whole idea of juicy gossip comes because people used to gossip when, you know, like monkeys would pick the nits from each other's heads. That's sort of the history of gossip. It was, a, 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 it's kind of a, a service to provide gossip to other people because it creates a, a, a medium through which people can now uh, both have an upper hand on someone else in their tribe, but also it creates an excuse for interaction. Oh, I heard this. And then everyone gathers around and you share your bit, right? So the bit that you're going to share about a company is, oh, you know, they do this horrible thing in, in their labor practices, or oh, they really use organic ingredients when this one doesn't. You know, if that's the kind of stuff that spreads, not you know, the, the Keebler elves are going hip hop. You know, that's not um, something you spread unless, and if that is the fact that you're spreading, then the reason it's spreading is because of how ridiculous it is, not because, ooh, this is exciting. So maybe there's a, some way in which it's the lens on the facts that also sort of seems to polarize, that the, the, the facts are being spread, but also the interpretation of those facts, and that it's easy maybe to gather with, with like-minded people. For me, I actually kind of find the opposite. I find that I'm more sensitive to nuance and differences because of the web. Yeah, I mean, you can be. I mean, the, the whole trick is people, you know, just because, just because we have access to something doesn't mean we know how to use it. You know, just because you have, just because you can write a blog doesn't mean you should be writing a blog, right? Just because you can make a political commentary doesn't mean you have the ability, the real ability to make a political commentary. You know, it's as easy for anyone to type a blog post as it is for the person who's typing it onto a, a you know, Huffington Post or in the New York Times. And it's created this false sense of, um, of competency. 
It's not to say that amateurs can't become competent or that they shouldn't be doing this. It's to say that we all start to think our opinion matters as much as everyone else's, and it doesn't. There are informed opinions, and there are uninformed ones. You know, some of my political opinions are uninformed, and I'm not going to present them um, as if I've got the authority to do so. But you know, I talk to a lot of kids. You know, I've talked to a lot of high schools, and a lot of students would say, you know, well, why should uh, you know why should I believe what you say about media more than what I say? Why is your why do you get paid for what you're writing, and I'm not getting paid for writing this paper in school? And what that what that what that betrays is a, a, a lack of, uh, of value in professionalism. You know, we don't value professional journalism anymore, be, partly because of these tools and the way these tools make us think about the authority of our own opinion. And if you're going to live in a world without professional journalists, you know, beware, because there are companies and governments spending hundreds of millions of dollars to, to, to hide and information from you and misinform you. And unless we're willing to spend at least a few hundred dollars on a professional journalist to, to deconstruct the messages coming at them, we are defenseless against a very powerful public relations industry that knows how to make stuff look really, really true to the untrained eye. You know, and it's just something we have to be willing on a certain level, we have to be willing to pay for. We have to be willing to say, just as we want a kind of a professional medical medical person and a, a, a professional uh, a clothing designer, we really do need professional economists and professional people, um, you know, working our working our government and and doing our journalism. So we're going to move to question and answer. If you've got a question for Doug, uh, feel free to raise your hand. That's uh, not where it used to be in Illuminate, but here in Blackboard Collaborate, you go over the smiley face and look for, I'm sorry, it is, it's the hand, it's the third icon over. You can also put a question in the chat. Uh, and while we're waiting for the first question to come in, Doug, describe your, the ideal teacher for your child. Your audio's off, sorry. We can't hear you, your audio is not on. There you go. Oh, Doug, sorry. Describe, describe. There you go. What? Describe the ideal teacher for your child. And my child's six. Um, right now, I'm hoping and this is, well, I'm going to say it in a way, I guess that her, her past teacher's not watching. Um, right now, at this age, I want a teacher who can model appropriate behaviors um, and who can model appropriate um, appropriate responses and strategies for contending with obstacles, right? I feel like she, she spent the year with a teacher who tended to either panic or get mad when there was a disruption or an obstacle. And I feel like at, at her level, one of the most valuable things is to see another human being um, employing 
the strategies that she needs to develop, whether it's patience or slowing things down or coming up with uh, alternatives. You know, I want, I want my daughter to learn how to resolve conflict, how to collaborate, how to do those kinds of things. And um, it's hard. It's really hard for teachers to do that, particularly as classes get bigger. But um, I, I found that after her year of kindergarten, she tended to, to uh, emulate a kind of a, a, a panic response. Uh, uh, you know, when you see your six-year-old standing up and saying, everyone be silent immediately, you know, or shut up. You know, it's like, oh, my God, who does that? Just my teacher. Um, so that's sort of what I'm looking at first. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal arts biased person, so um, I'm, I'm going to tend more towards the kind of teacher who, um, rather than teaching, I mean, obviously, teaching rote memorization um, and, and raw skills, who, um, you know, begins that process of, of critical inquiry. You know, and I, I, I don't think a kid is ever too young to be invited to do a critical inquiry. You know, when, when my daughter was three, I gave her a, a leap pad. You know, people give me tech all the time. It's just one of the great things and one of the banes of my existence. So I gave her this leap pad, and she looks at it, and she says, she clicks on a couple of things, and then she says, oh, Daddy, give me a real book. And um, I kind of liked that. I liked that she, she was just like, it, the bells and whistles and sounds that it made weren't enough to um, let her at that point surrender to what she saw as her, you know, the way that the agency that she had um, with a regular book. And I was just like, oh, so she evaluated this thing rather than just um, accepting it at face value as the thing, as the thing to use. Um, you know, as, as um, she gets older, I'm, I'm, a big fan of lateral thinking. Of I'm um, um, into teachers who, when um, a kid can't solve something in a certain way, who uh, you know have the confidence and the time to bring a technique from another area and then apply it to that area, so kids can see the parallel, so they can see um, that uh, you know that arithmetic and reading and social that all the different things that they're learning are not absolutely separate disciplines, but the, the ability they've gained in one area uh, can be applied um, to another one. And I'm also hoping for um, teachers who uh, understand that maybe that one of the greatest values of classroom learning is the fact that they're sharing a space together. You know, a teacher who's very aware that kids who have so much screen time and computer time and are growing up in these virtual environments um, really need um, remedial attention in their human-to-human -human skills that, uh, that are going to matter, both for having meaningful lives and being able to, to work with other people, you know, to help them um, contend with the 94% of communication that happens non-verbally. Um, it's kind of super important. So I'm, I'm hoping for teachers that are really kind of comfortable um, in their skin and comfortable with other people and just as comfortable with people as they are with whatever subject it is that they're supposed to be teaching. I'm interested that you brought up the digital book. Uh, I interviewed Hugh McGuire who started a service called LibreVox, which is a crowdsourced audio 
book recordings. And he was talking about the fact that publishers feel that in order to compete, they have to create sort of new snazzy bells and whistles around the book. And whereas a service like LibreVox or Gutenberg, that these are actual sort of ways to, to participate authentically in um, uh, the printed word and 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 then storytelling. Um, have you seen that as well, that there may be this sort of thrust in the publishing world to reshape what publishing is in order to stay relevant? Um, and is that maybe a part of the story of why your daughter didn't respond to that? I don't think it's um, publishing's effort to stay relevant as much as uh, publishing's effort to stay profitable. You know, it's very hard to get money for text now. So the bells and whistles are about creating uh, kind of ancillary value and things that could be more easily locked down and charged for. You know, so a Poingo book, you know, requires that you have this technology and that you buy the book and that, you know, it's a thing that you have to purchase as opposed to just download or just read. And it's my, my text, anybody can pretty much get my text for free. You can't lock that down, really. I mean, I suppose, you know, but um, it's a matter of uh, they're trying to create object value and, and, and sales. And, you know, in some ways, you know, the, the firewalls of, of iTunes and the way that, you know, Steve Jobs is trying to re-anchor these technologies as places to buy stuff rather than places where we're expected to have everything for free, um, you know, that serves me on a certain level as a writer because now, you know, uh, people uh, are again becoming willing to pay for a download. I mean, 10 years ago, who would have paid for a download? It just seemed outrageous. Um, it should all be free. Information wants to be free and all that. Um, so people are, are, are kind of becoming, uh, again, willing to do that. But, um, you know, I think we're, we're, we're still finding the form for this medium, you know, and sort of we see the beginnings of it in video games and transmedia is sort of where I feel like that this medium will find itself. And once it does, then books can kind of return to being books the same way that movies return to being movies, you know, with the advent of the video cassette recorder. You know, once we had the video recorder and people were watching, you know, older movies and art films and things like that at home, then those, you know, 30-plex cinemas where you're sitting in a room with 16 chairs and a tiny screen, those all broke down their walls again and turned into movies. And movies now are becoming even more movie than they were. You know, they're back to the kind of 3D 1950s, you know, kind of grand special effects things. Um, so I feel like uh, once this medium finds itself, then text will be kind of liberated uh, to be books again. But I feel like we also have to accept the the fact that the conventions that of the medium that I grew up with, the conventions of book publishing, were based less on some, you know, Pythagorean theorem for the ideal length of a text than they were just how many pages could you sew together before the thing fell apart. That's, you know, that's the length of a novel. And if that's not the length of the popular form of our era, and I don't want to be writing opera, then I'm going to have to look at, well, what are these other things? What are these short form manifestos? How do they work? And I mean, shoot, I could write four manifestos that are a series 
instead of four chapters of a book that were considered too long as chapters anyway. So, you know, there, there, there are ways to, um, to embrace um, the change without uh, feeling like all the values are, are, are going out with the, uh, uh, with the old form. Doug, thanks so much. I'm clapping for you. I'm using a little applause icon, which is now found under the smiley face. The book is Program or Reprogrammed 10 Commands for a Digital Age by Doug Rushkoff. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really delightful. really appreciate you taking the time from your family to do so. Oh, well, thank you. And hello to SHS. Good Lord. And hi, everybody. Thanks for coming all this way. Hi, Betty, if you're the Betty I know. Hello, and uh, I don't know anybody else on there, I don't think. But greetings, be good. Everybody get sleep. Thanks, Doug. Okay. Okay. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Take care. Okay. Good night, everybody. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for what you're doing.